Welcome to a special edition of the Transcript Podcast. We'll be digging a little bit deeper into the semiconductor space. We're privileged to have Eric Chonsa here, who's a tech analyst who deals with the semis industry a lot. He tweets a lot. So you can find him on Twitter at, at Eric Chonsa. That's E-R-I-C-J-H-O-N-S-A. He writes columns for Real Money and also for The Street. He writes a lot on Twitter, very engaging, especially in the areas of semis and tech generally. Welcome to our special podcast, Eric. I should get started maybe by asking you, can tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do day to day. Sure. I've been writing about tech stocks for about 20 years. I handled tech news coverage for Seeking Alpha from 2012 to 2016. And then after that, I was a tech columnist for the street. Now there's a subscription site, Real Money, from 2016 to 2020. Since the start of 2021, I've spent like a lot of my time trading in investments in tech stocks, but I still do a bit of writing. I still write a little bit for Real Money and I also still do some earnings like vouchers. What got you interested in the semiconductor space? It's kind of gradually just formed out writing. Column in 2016, there was a lot of interest in the space and maybe it wasn't covered as much by other financial website and maybe some of the bigger like tech news sites. And uh, so I wrote a lot about it in India and I just, uh, I guess it drew a following. And I was also like, fortunate enough to uh, interview some you know, senior executives at like some of these companies. So I think that helped out as well. It was just something I kind of gradually, um, you know, got into and, um, you know, where I just gained an interest in the space over time. Interesting. And then for someone who's new to the industry, can you map up to us who are the key players in the industry? What does semiconductor industry deal with generally? Okay. Uh, there are a whole bunch of different players broken out in different fields. You can start with the uh, IDMs, like a traditional chip manufacturers who both design and manufacture their own chips. You have companies like Intel, Texas Instruments, Analog Devices, T-Micro, Corvo. Then you have the Fabulous Semis. These are companies that design their own chips, but uh, outsource manufacturing or foundry like DSMC or whatever. These are companies like NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm. Marvell, MediaTek. Then you have the memory makers. The big three there are Micron, Samsung, and SK Hynix. Though with NAND memory, you also have some other players like Western Digital, Deoxia, China, YMTC. Then you have the foundries, contract manufacturers for chips. You know, TSMC is by far the biggest one. They have a 50% plus market share. But then you also have various other players such as Global Foundries, Samsung, UMC, SMIC. Then you have the chip equipment makers, you know, just companies supplying first on the front end, like equipment for wafer fabrication, which are like applied materials, KLA, ASML, Land Research, Tokyo Electron. Then you also have some companies that provide equipment for assembly and tests, like Teradyne. Or then you'll have like, the OSATs, the companies that do outsourcing for assembly and tests, which are like the Amcor, ASC, and ChipMOS. And then uh, finally, you got the EDA software firms, which are companies that uh, provide software for uh, doing chip design. Cadence and Synopsis are two big ones. Uh, Siemens is also a player there. That's a very interesting mapping of the industry as a whole. Some of the key players, which I follow, are like AMD, TSMC, because they're pretty huge global foundries, and all. Intel, obviously, because they're in a on a kind of a, a transformation journey from having lagged the industry for a while and not trying to become the lead in the industry. Of all these companies, one of the themes that have come out, especially during this earnings season, is that they have excess inventory. Some of them do. It depends on the company. I think it depends on the products. Yeah, def uh, it differs definitely from company to company. But generally, the question I had was for maybe map out for us, what's the typical cycle for a 
semiconductor industry player in terms of at what point they have like excess inventory and when do they have like little inventory and does that ever balance out in the cycle of a business? Yeah, in a traditional cycle, I guess what you have up cycles and down cycles. I guess when an up cycle is like kicking off, our customer inventories, distributor inventories are fairly low and these customers are finally seeing an uptake in demand and that higher demand leads them to one place larger orders, try to replenish their inventories. And that in turn leads to lead times for fulfilling these orders to start growing. That kind of creates like a purchase cycle for a little while where these like a longer lead times, this higher demand, this inventory replenishment will then lead like the ship to place large orders with foundries or if they're IDMs to increase their capex. And the foundries, when they get large orders, they start increasing their capex and they invest more to provide more supply. And that goes on for a while. And when demand finally starts slowing for the end customers, and uh, maybe also when the lead time start uh, contracting, just because there's now more supply, these customers will then start cutting their orders. They'll start uh, cutting back on their inventory. And that's when the downside typically starts. As you say, d- different companies are also at different stages. I know, especially the ones that are very exposed to consumer goods uh, section, have excess inventories. That's what they've been reporting this past quarter. Are semiconductors not interchangeable in a way that you can switch them from auto to consumer goods? Because I know at cons- uh, auto companies say they still have inven- inventory shortages uh, in the areas of semiconductors, but then those are exposed to consumer go- goods industry are saying that they, they do have excess inventory. What's your take and what's your feel around the industry currently on where we are in the business cycle? It's very complex. I think sometimes people try to oversimplify and even they say, oh, everything's great. There's still a ton of demand for chips, just buy everything. Or on the flip side, they'll just say, we're going into a massive down cycle and every ship supplier is going to get crushed and kind of see giant inventory corrections. And I think the truth is in between. For a lot of consumer products, like you were saying, for PCs, for smartphones, more low-end smartphones, high-end, for graphics cards, for home electronics, there is weakening demand, certainly, in how they're and continuing, looks like it's going to continue and into well, like back half this year. And you have seen like a lot of the end customers, the LVNs, uh, start to cut their inventories because of that. And that's probably going to continue for a while. You go like out into other markets, some places, I think you're starting to see inventory corrections because you had, did see OEMs build up inventories over the last two years, thanks to the pandemic, costing supply chain disruptions, and also just because of demand spiking, companies wanting to play it safe build up inventory. So you do have some here and there, but it really depends on the product. It depends on the end market. You have memory makers like Micron are saying they're seeing broad in the inventory corrections. It's not just consumer products for them. They're seeing like the server OEMs cut inventories. And they, Micron suggests they're seeing some initial inventory cuts even among auto industrial customers. But like other major suppliers, the auto industrial firms like NXP, OnSemi, Microchips, T-Micro, they suggest their demand is still pretty good and that their channel inventories are still pretty low, that they're below historical levels. And some of them have said some of their customers are carrying higher normal inventories, but they're also saying like others still have major shortages of supplies. And a couple of them basically said they're trying to shift some of the supply from companies that do have some excess inventory to companies that are still dealing with shortages that need more inventory. So it's far from an awful situation for them. And it seems like their lead times for many of their products are still pretty elevated. They're still much higher than usual. I mean, eventually those lead times will come down as more so and so on. Not a bad situation really for them. So perhaps looking out at some of the maybe key takeaways that you've taken from earnings this season, apart from the fact that some of them are challenged in terms of having excess inventory and others are not, 
Are there any other maybe things that stood out for you as you looked at the various companies? I know Global Foundries were reporting this week and some of them still reporting. I think one of the things that you tweeted out today was about uh, lead times uh, still quite pretty high. They've been revised downwards, but at 27 to 26.9 weeks, but that's very small. Uh, so I think that was stood out for you in the earnings season for the various companies in the CMIS industry. A few different things. Obviously, just mentioned like the consumer weakness. It's more pronounced in certain consumer products than others. Certainly, uh, gaming GPUs are pretty weak right now. I'm sure you saw Infinity Exploring. And it reminds me a little bit of early 2019 when you all had a major inventory corrections among the graphics cards, OEMs. After there was giant surge in demand from crypto miners. You've got this time, maybe the crypto impact isn't quite as big. So it is there at the end, but you just had a surge in the game GPU demand over the last couple of years, and you're now seeing some contraction. And also you've got a uh, new G- gaming GPUs coming out later this year. So some people might want to hold off on their purchases until the new ones come out. So that was one thing. Um, on the other hand, the strength in high-end smartphones was a little surprising. Like Apple reported a fairly good quarter. They were indicating their demand still isn't bad. And their chip suppliers have also suggested sometimes. We usually can't mention Apple by name. It suggests that our biggest customer, our top high-end smartphone customer, which is like code for Apple, they're saying they're still seeing good demand. So that was a positive surprise. I guess the other thing is just how much cloud demand is holding up. Well, at least in the U.S., there's some softening in cloud capex in China, but the U.S. hyperscalers like Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, Google, uh, they're still investing a ton in capex, and it looks like that's going to continue into 2023. So that was definitely a strong point. I guess the one other thing is you saw Micron's warning that memory is maybe like the weakest area right now, or one of them, just because it's not just about lower volumes because of the consumer exposure, because of the smartphone PC exposure. It's also because these companies sell commodity products to large extent. When volumes drop, when demand falls short of supply, you see prices drop. That's causing major issues and it's causing these companies to rethink their CapEx plans. So I think those are big things for me. All right. And perhaps given in terms of outlook, I can sense that you're a bit positive in some of these companies. I think that you've seen there, so in terms of valuations, that they challenged, how are they doing in the same as industry overall this year? I think a lot of the valuations are reasonable. You find a handful that are still kind of expensive, but you look at like a lot of these analog and MCU suppliers that will have like high auto industrial exposure for your companies I like, a lot of them still trade for maybe 12 to 15, 16 times forward earnings. They're not exorbitant valuations by any means. And I guess skeptics might argue that some of these estimates might need to get cut because you see inventory corrections and so on. But even if they're ultimately trading at like 17 to 19 times forward earnings if for next year, if that's like trough cycle earnings, if that's like the bottom of the cycle, they're still only at like a 17, a P of 17 to 19 or 20, you know, that's not bad at all. And uh, same thing I'd say with a lot of the chip equipment makers like Applied and KLA and so on. They've got very similar forward PEs. Sometimes it's like 12, 13 times forward earnings or around there. And uh, it's very reasonable. Even if you do assume some estimate cuts because of uh, weakening memory capex, you still have a pretty strong demand environment for uh, capex among uh, foundry and logic manufacturers. So like, even if you assume those estimates get cut a bit and those forward PEs increase a bit, these aren't crazy valuations by any means right now. So in terms of reading the earnings calls of some of these companies, for someone who's new to the same as industry, what are some of the things they should be looking out for? Especially in this season, you've got to pay attention to what they're talking about in terms of inventories, in terms of outlook, in terms of demand. 
when you sit down with an earnings call transcript or an earnings call report from one of these semiconductor industry players, what are some of the things that draw your attention very quickly? It depends. I mean, certainly I uh, just see any commentary about the supply demand balance, about uh, where they see supply uh, catching up with demand. That's definitely true for a lot of these like analog NIPSU names and for the foundries too. just paid attention to that. Just then uh, any commentary about demand in different end markets where there's still seeing strength, where there's seeing weakness how things are in automotive, they are industrial compared with how they are in consumer and markets. So a lot of that, a commentary about a channel inventories, also just what how much inventory distributors are holding is, has that gotten elevated for a lot of companies, it's still fairly low though for a couple of companies, it's gone up recently. And then also on um, CapEx plans, of course, environment like this, where from companies have been trying to catch up with demanding for a while, they've been investing heavily in CapEx and just seeing how that's trending. That matters obviously directly for the ship manufacturers and then also, of course, manufacturer matters it for the equipment suppliers. So it's a bunch of different things to look at. Another question that I had is about the OEMs and how the outlook in terms of inventory. And we've touched on it a little bit, but are OEM likely to have excess inventory and compared to the other inventories that they have on the balance sheet? Have you seen any signs of that? Because from the earnings that we're reading so far. Uh, the OEMs still say that they have uh, huge chip shortages. Uh, they still demand for the cars and they still can't have enough. And I think for last year, they were mostly making premium end cars, which are fetching a bit more money. What's the feel you get from the OEMs uh, this quarter? It depends on the, like, the kind of OEM. For the automakers, certainly a lot of them are saying there's still a supply constraint. They're still dealing with shortages. Some of them have built up inventories for certain chips, but it varies getting from one chip to another. Not one. Thing I'd bring up here with this concerns about double ordering stockpiling is it tends to happen more for cheaper chips. It might happen for a cheap like MCU or power management chip or whatever. But uh, OEM, whether an auto elsewhere, they're less likely to significantly stockpile inventories for more expensive chips. Yeah, like a Broadcom CEO brought that up before. And so I guess with the auto OEMs, like, like you're saying, there's still vehicle shortages. And the automakers have been prioritizing costlier vehicles in an environment like this, these higher margin, higher ASP vehicles. And that naturally increases the amount of chip content that goes in. And then you also just have secular trends driving the higher auto semi-consumption in terms of EV adoption, ADAS adoption, more powerful infotainment systems, these digital instrument clusters. So all of that's been driving consumption. And then also just from a revenue standpoint with the chip suppliers, prices have been going up. Some of this is due to inflationary stuff. Some of this is due to supply demand balance. It's for a variety of reasons, prices have gone higher. So you have a bunch of factors that have been driving up auto semi sales that are, don't necessarily stem from higher, from large inventory bills. Though again, for certain products, you might have some inventory going up. Outside of auto, I think if you look at like enterprise hardware OEMs, PC OEMs, they have increased their inventory or so you look at their balance sheets. It's not often by a crazy amount. You do some like back in the envelope map. It looks like a lot of these OEMs, they might carry like an extra month or so of inventory on average for a lot of products. So if they pair back their inventories back to normal levels, it's not necessarily the end of the world for the chip suppliers, just as long as end demand doesn't fall sharply at the same time. So yeah, a lot of OEMs do have like some excess inventory, certainly for various reasons. Some got nervous just because of supply chain disruptions and Maybe some of them just decided to double order because you have this supply demand imbalance for the last couple of years. But at the same time, it's not always a crazy amount. And again, it varies from product to product. There's some products they might've stockpiled a lot of, of, of chips of, 
Whereas others are still dealing with shortages. A quick one, especially in terms of TSMC and their important role that they play within the semi space. Lately, there have been a lot of geopolitical risks. I think with the situation in Ukraine, it has opened a lot of uh, countries' eyes to the risks that are inherent in globalization. So I think they're trying to kind of scale back on that. And I think one key issue is obviously TSMC and their recent issues, I say, with China, US and US with Intel and all of these geopolitical risks around this space. What's your feel around geopolitical risk and semiconductor space currently and perhaps going forward? Certainly it's on the minds of politicians. They want want to localize supply chains more. Completely localizing things is unrealistic. The idea that you're going to the Apple and AMD and Qualcomm are suddenly just going to get everything from the U.S. and not have anything manufactured in Taiwan or anywhere else out of the U.S. That's not realistic, but they want more security even supply chains. They want to make sure that in a worst case scenario, you can still manufacture these chips in the U.S. And certainly, so you, know, you saw the CHIPS Act and you also have other countries creating their own subsidies. The EU is also offering subsidies. It's happening in other parts of the world. And I think that'll continue. And that's certainly a tailwind for you know, chip CrabEx for fab equipment spend. You just like all the new fabs are going to get built. Like she's building a new fab in Phoenix. Intel's building a couple of new fabs nearby. Samsung's building a big one in Texas. And then this lot of this with the help of subsidies. And so I think that effort to create more like redundancy in supply chains to make them just in a worst case scenario, you can have a lot of that manufacturing done locally if necessary. I think that trend will continue. But at the same time, it won't be like everything's going to be shifted over to one country. Everything's going to be localized. It's more like a fail-safe mechanism. And speaking of Intel, how are they in terms of their turnaround strategy and the outlook? I think you mentioned to me before we hit record that 2024 would be a key year for them. Why, why do you think so? Intel is uh, really in a rough spot right now. Their future uh, report was pretty bad. Uh, their guidance was really, really bad. It took a lot of people by surprise, just like how much they're struggling right now. A lot of it's due to their manufacturing issues, how their next-gen process, which I guess they don't call Intel 4, pushed out. And uh, they're losing a lot of CPU share to like AMD and also the ARM CPU developers. And so uh, 2024 could be a big year because they have an ambitious manufacturing technology roadmap. And uh, if they can make good on that roadmap in 2024, they could be ahead of TSMC in terms of process technology. They're supposed to start calling production of the next-gen process called a 20A in the first half of 2024. That's in the second half of 2024, they say they're going to start production of another process, successor process called 18A. And those processes, if they ramp on time, will be like more advanced than anything. TSMC expects to have that at that point. TSMC is going to start following production of a process called N2 in the second half of 2025, which is from the looks of things might be competitive with 28. So if Intel pulls this off, they have a lead, but it's a big if right now, just because they've had uh, so many execution issues, they've really just struggled to make good on their manufacturing promises in recent years. So there are a lot of unknowns right now, and it's really a make or break year for them, I feel, because if they don't make good on this roadmap, then they're really going to be in a tough spot, just given how much market share they've been losing will probably continue losing it the next year to uh, AMD and to various ARM CPU developers. That was of AMD versus uh, Intel. You tweeted a while back about the trends in the margins. Could you reiterate what you talked about there? Yeah. <clears throat> if you dial back the clock a few years, Intel's gross margin was far above AMD's. Yeah, Intel's GMs were like in the 60s. AMD's were like in the mid-30s. And now the shoe's on the other foot. Like AMD's gross margin is like in the 
of the mid fifties, they got a bit of a boost from this island's acquisition here, but even without that, you would probably be around 50% or so. And now Intel's margins have actually fallen into the forties. And uh, some of this is like due to Intel's volume pressures due to some of their execution issues. Some of it's also just how it, in, due to Intel's decision to significantly increase their capex, which drives up by their uh, depreciation expenses. Yeah. Intel's really betting the farm on this like manufacturing strategy of catching up to TSMC manufacturing wise and also become a major foundry player, investing a ton of capex along the way. And uh, in the short term, there's a clear margin hit there. And on the flip side, AMD has really moved up market. Their server CPU sales have really taken off and these are high margin products. And then even in the PC CPU market, you know, their sales mix is really shifted towards more expensive PCs, towards like mid-range and high-end PCs. And that's very different than what's the case like five or six years ago when their sales really skewed more towards the low end. And then you combine that with just their great scale at this point, the operating leverage that comes with that. I think that's also helped out with their margin profile. All right. So in closing, perhaps I would want to ask maybe two final questions. So one is which kind of resources would you recommend to someone who's interested more in this space to look out for some of their newsletters? the books that you're reading or perhaps your columns where people can find you. But also you can tell us a little bit about something that is very interesting that you've learned that surprised you by learning or by looking around into the semiconductor space. So what's the most interesting story or any interesting factoid that you've learned by engaging in this space for a while? It's kind of a tough question. I'm not sure if there, there's one thing I guess would really hop out. I mean, just learning like how many different steps go into manufacturing chip, you know, how many different processes there are, you have hundreds of different things, steps. It's fascinating in a way. It's almost like magic when you think of all these different steps, all these different technologies that get after you deployed, how precise everything has to be, how pristine the air quality has to be. Uh, it uh, drives home why manufacturing at the leading edge is so difficult and why some company like Intel has had like, some of the challenges they've had and why TSMC has become so dominant, why no one else has really been able to keep up with them. And so that's what really been like interesting to me. Just from the technical side, the challenges and like how much it keeps getting more and more complex. It's not getting any easier as like new leading edge processes come out and the transistors get smaller and smaller. In terms of resources, there are a lot of great websites online. I feel like there are also a lot of great Twitter followers. I feel like a lot of people who really follow semis closely. There are a lot of trade journals. I would say like a site like the next platform or semi engineering or semi wiki sites like that off you are worth just checking out to try to get some more information from the people who are interested in the space. EE Times, I guess, would be another one. Digitimes, I feel sometimes, you know, they're a little hit and miss and sometimes they're reporting, but I think it's worth just following for supply. Sometimes their supply chain scoops are useful. There are a lot of different websites, I'd say, online that people can check out. And certainly, I think Twitter is also very useful. There are some very smart people on Twitter who are often tweeting about semis to really just have a, a figure on the pulse in space. I think those are great resources that you've mentioned. I would say for me, what stood out in terms of learning in the semiconductor space, I was impressed by this one picture that was doing rounds on Twitter a while back about how many semiconductor chips are in the modern car compared to previously. So that's stood out for me. I didn't know chips were that essential to almost every aspect of our car manufacturing process. So on that note, then I'll close the podcast for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll have you again soon to keep expanding for us this semiconductor space. Thanks for having me.